The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We're going to continue our series in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, redemption face-to-face. We're looking at all these personal encounters between Jesus and individuals. And we pick up tonight with maybe one of the more... Uh, I don't know, famous or infamous? I don't know. I'm always get kind of those two terms just, you know, confused. Infamous, I guess, is being famous for, for being bad. I don't know, it's a bad reputation. Yeah. I don't know. Rich Brangor, I guess we can determine if he's infamous or famous. But we're going to read through this, and then I'm going to pray for God's help, and we're going to look at this interaction between Jesus and this rich young ruler together. So let me, I'm just going to re- pick up chapter 18. Verse 18, reading through verse 30. A ruler asked him, this is the rich young ruler, a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will, tr- and you, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it, those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many more times, many more in, uh, in this time and in the age to come. And in the age to come, eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this story. We ask that you would give us your spirit to have wisdom and insight into what this means for us and what it teaches us about Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So in 1984, Daniel LaRusso moved from Newark, New Jersey to Rosetta, Los Angeles. Is that how you pronounce it? Rosetta? Rosetta? You're from California. You. Rosetta. Is that right? Moved to Los Angeles. In 1984, Daniel LaRusso moved to, from, Los An- from New Jersey to Los Angeles with his mother Lucille. As happens sometimes, he became the subject of a high degree of uh, bullying from the neighborhood uh, jocks. And in the midst of all of this, the bullying, one time he was at the end of an alley being beat up by all these guys and the eccentric janitor 
Kesuki Miyagi stepped in to save the day. Now, if you are putting the dots together, we are talking about, of all things, the original Karate Kid. <laughs> so what happens? Mr. Miyagi picks up Daniel, Danielson, and uh, trains him. And in one of the more famous events in the whole of cinematic history, we're talking about the sanding. What is it? Sand the floor, wax on, wax off. Paint the fence, paint the house. I watched it today just to make sure that I had all the motions correctly. <laughs> yeah, sermon prep. It's also known as my lunch break. <laughs> so sand the floor, wax on, wax off. And Daniel is totally, he was just so frustrated. Why am I having to do this? What is going on? This seems like meaningless effort, meaningless and so then, you know, there's a scene where Mr. Miyagi starts punching at him and showing him how this all connects to actually what Daniel's there to do, to train. And at the, at the heart of it, when Daniel should have been trusting Mr. Miyagi, he was doubting him. He should have been trusting his training. Mr. Miyagi knew what he was doing. He knew what he was teaching him. He knew what was going on. And Daniel did not... He should have trusted Mr. Miyagi, and I think in this passage, we are seeing Jesus going at the heart of this rich young ruler and asking him, do you trust me? We are being addressed by God here. Do, do you trust God and what he is doing? Do you trust him at the heart of what's going on? Where Daniel was doubting, he should have been trusting. And it's the same way where we are doubting and questioning God, we should be trusting him, and where Daniel had expectations of how training should look, we often have expectations of what God's purpose is and who God is, and rather we should be looking to Jesus. And so we're gonna be looking at this, uh, just like Mr. Miyagi pulls back the veil and shows Daniel what's going on. I think Jesus here pulls back the veil on our hearts and how we don't trust God and is calling us and showing us through this rich young ruler, the rich young man, that we are called that we can trust God for everything. Because as God provides everything in Jesus, as we're going to be seeing, we can trust God for everything in our lives. And so what does that mean? What does that mean in this passage? What are we going to be seeing? We're going to be seeing how we can trust God. What does it mean for disciples to trust God with everything? And so we're going to be just walking through this with three, three simple aspects of what it means to trust God with everything. And so, we're going to pick up in verse 18, we're going to see that disciples trust God with their identity. So here we have the rich ruler, verse 18 through 23, and a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's basically saying, what does it mean to be saved? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And Jesus said, and he said, sorry, and the rich ring ruler says to Jesus, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. So all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. 
And when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. So we have this rich young ruler, probably not a, not a teacher, not a rabbi, but probably like a, you know, a, a local businessman who was like really successful. You know, I don't know, probably like uh, the top floor of the, the big buildings downtown, made a lot of money, very successful, very well known, local influencer. And he is coming to Jesus and basically saying like, with all this kind of surrounding of like, look, I'm the man, I got it going on, but what, I just wanna make sure, just checking in with you, Jesus, what do I need to do to be saved? What do I, I just wanna kinda make sure we're on the same page. Jesus, you seem like you know what's going on. I think I know what's going on. I'd like to make sure that we are like, you know, apples to apples that we're on the same page. And it comes to Jesus, Jesus, what do I need to do to be saved? And Jesus, uh, just very basically, just kind of says, well, are you obeying the Ten Commandments? And the guy's like, sweet, got this one licked. Jesus lists out six of the Ten Commandments. The guy's like, God under control. I'm a good guy. I'm a good guy. You're a good guy. We're good guys. I'm in with Jesus. Except that's not good. It's not what Jesus is looking for. Jesus is pointing the Ten Commandments because he is trying to expose this man's heart, trying to show him what does it mean to be good, what does it mean to know God, and here this man kind of, he thinks he gets the test right, but he totally fails. Because where Jesus is pointing him to is the Ten Commandments, do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Do you love your neighbors yourself? And this guy thinks, I've got all this blessing in my life, I am rich, successful, and lo and behold, I happen to have kept all the commandments according to how I think they should be kept. Um, but Jesus, Jesus sees something else going on here. He sees that this man, though he is rich, seems to have enjoyed his richness a little too much, seems to have kind of banked his life and his status in his success. And he sees that this man, it's not bad to be rich, but he sees this man is withholding from investing in the people around him. I think maybe what's, what Jesus is seeing is here's this guy, super rich, but there's a, there's a, there's a wealth of, of need around him that would show that he loves God more than his riches if he were to give his money away. It's not that he's saying everybody has to get away, give away their riches, but he is identifying that in this man's heart there is a sense of satisfaction with his own accomplishments. He has missed the heart of obedience because his sense of goodness has been shrunk down to what he thinks he's done. I've honored my mom and dad. Thanksgiving, Christmas, always there, good to go. Uh, I'm not running around committing adultery. I'm not stealing. I'm blessed. I'm good to go. And his sense of goodness has shrunk down to his own his own kind of like little, little list of rule keeping. But Jesus, by identifying the whole riches thing, is saying like, listen, your heart is not generous, which means that you have not experienced the generosity of a loving God. You've, you've taken his kind of characteristics of, you know, being nice to other people, and you have made those into your own little list of rules to keep. Uh, and we, uh, his accomplishments is effectively what blinds him from knowing God, right? He is, he's blessed by all appearances, he's successful, but uh, 
his blind, he is blinded by his accomplishments. And I think, uh, I think that's something that we tend to do as well, right? We tend to think, I'm a nice guy. I don't cut people off in traffic. I recycle. I'm nice to people who are mean. Um, I, I want to be well-read. I am a good person to my neighbors. I'm, I'm striving to be successful with my job. We tend to think and restrict goodness down to kind of like the manageable things in our life. You know, like, here we go, people like on a scale of one to 10, are you good, how good are you? Well, I'm not like a Hitler, but I'm not like a Mother Teresa. I'm kind of like somewhere in the middle, you know? <laughs> Like they kind of like we, like we tend to like restrict goodness down to like something that we can manage and do right. Um, I think that's what this guy is doing here. He's like, look, like I'm not I'm not perfect, but J- Jesus, when it comes to the Ten Commandments, I'm good to go. But Jesus is drawing him down, drawing him to see that his benchmark of goodness has been restricted because his heart is not generous towards those around him. His heart is not generous because he has not experienced the generosity of God to him. That's why Jesus, I think, is saying, look, if you really obey the Ten Commandments, you would be generous to other people because you would want your treasure to be in heaven with God. But your identity has now become all of these things that are successful markers around you. He has, he has restricted himself down. And, and I think Jesus is really after this whole idea. You, you might call it legalism. I know it's kind of like a religious term, but this idea that like we can muster up our own identity. We can, we, can, I, we can satisfy our own identity. We can manage our own goodness. Jesus is really going after this because at the heart of who we are, we either want to trust ourselves or we want to trust God. And we, we, love, we love to make ourselves the center of our world. Just earlier in this passage, in verse 9, Jesus is having this interaction with these other Pharisees um, and it said, Luke says, and he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So this is just right before this interaction with the rich ruler. I think and it, what happens is Jesus tells this parable, one guy, super religious, you know, fish on the car, Republican voting, you know, pro-life, uh, always goes to church on Sundays, always gives generously, um, goes to church and is super grateful and he says, God, I'm so glad that I'm not like that guy over there that you've made me good. And Jesus points to the other guy that's in the crowd who is a swindler, who plays the lotto, chain smokes, who is the guy that is not doing the great things in the world, but he knows, he knows that he's broken. He knows a sinner. Says, God have mercy on me. And Jesus points to the guy who's broken He's the one that knows God, not the guy who has all the trappings of being good. We see that here with this rich ruler. He has all the appearance of being good, but his identity is restricted down to his own sense of goodness, his own sense of his own identity. His identity is not rooted in God. But what, what Jesus is calling him to is to repent of those things. Because he's saying there at the end of verse 22, look, give away all these things and come follow me. Jesus' invitation to this man is, look, you, can, you don't have to put your identity in these things, these markers of success, these ways in which you have accomplished. You can come and follow me. You can root your identity in me. I, I am perfectly good. Jesus is the only one who has perfectly kept the Ten Commandments. 
He's the only one who's totally pleased God. He's the only one that God is absolutely satisfied without having to show an ounce of mercy to him. Jesus is calling him, look, invest your, all of your finances, all that you have, invest those in loving God and loving others because that is how you're gonna be showing repentance. Now, he's not saying this. I don't think he's saying this as like the golden rule of anybody who's ever been successful. But he is calling it as a check upon our sense of identity. Because Jesus wants us to be followers of him. He wants us to be identified with him. He wants us to root our identity in him because we want Jesus, because he says there in verse 22, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. He wants us to have treasure with him. He wants us to be identified with him and only Jesus will satisfy our craving for an identity, an identity that can be truly rested in. And so I don't know if you, um, I don't know if you ever find yourself uh, anxious or concerned or um, just a bit panicky about your life and who you are. You know, like, uh, who am I? What am I doing? Why am I here? I think those are all questions that kind of come out of like our desire for an identity. And I don't know if you wrestle with this, but I think that we all tend to slip into like this rich young ruler mindset of like, what I do defines me or who I am is defined by the things I accomplish in life. Uh, I'm successful at my job, therefore I must be a successful person. You know, like that sort of thing. But if, you are, if, you're, if you're trying to analyze, if you are becoming a rich young ruler, somebody who's finding their identity in the things that they have accomplished, or the things they are uh, good at or productive at or successful at, maybe this question would be helpful to identify if you are becoming a rich young ruler who's making your identity rest in things rather than Jesus. If I had blank, I'd be happy. I think it's a helpful question to ask. If I had a wife, if I had a boyfriend, if I had a successful job, if I had a place of my own, if I had a successful job, if I had uh, a church of my own, if I had um, a second house, if I had, just fill in the blank, if I had a better job, if I had more obedient kids, I'd be, you know, just whatever you want to say. If I had blank, I'd be more happy. Whatever that blank is, if I had, I'd be more happy. That is potentially an identifying mark that you have begun to shift your identity from resting in Jesus to something else. You are becoming this rich young ruler and you are restricting your identity down to the things that you can accomplish, down to the things you can do, down to things that are available in this world rather than in Jesus, rather than in him alone. So as Jesus is running into this identity issue with this man and he is calling him as a disciple to trust God for his identity, he's gonna move now into asking us to trust God for our reward. Disciples trust God with their reward. So now that he's called into question this man's identity and his things, he's not gonna to go to his reward. Picking up in verse 24, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, 
said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier to go, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who hear it said, those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said to him, I'm just so grateful for Peter. And Peter said to him, see, we've left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this life and in the age to come. So here this man is sad. He has lost this hope that he has in his money. And here's the problem. At the time, people saw basically, if you've got money, you've been blessed by God, right? And it's not that much different today. If people are successful, happy, healthy, you know, stable family, uh, you know, beach picture, pictures on Facebook, they are successful and blessed people, right? Like we, like, I don't know if you guys, you know, the whole like Facebook envy thing, like you just see people who are happy on Facebook and you think, I wish I had their lives because my life is not happy, but God must clearly love them more than me because they're smiling at the beach and they're not punching their spouse or their kids. You know, like that, that is what we are seeing here because this man has his identity based on these things and Jesus has called him out on it. But, just like, the, just like today, they looked at the signs of God's blessing to be material possessions. They saw that he had a lot of money, and now Jesus has basically cut the legs out from underneath him. Your, your reward with God, your acceptance with God is not based or affirmed by your riches. Jesus is not impressed with this man's riches, and he goes on to say basically the rich um, are incredibly, it's difficult for them to in, in, enter the kingdom of God. Be, just like it's difficult for a camel to get through the eye of a needle. Now, I, there's lots of debates about what does this mean? Is this like a, a literal thing? Is this like, you know, like some sort of metaphor? I just take it at face value. Jesus trying to draw an extreme example. It's like a camel trying to go through the eye of a needle, whatever size that needle is. It is, and the reason I think is because the, the world allures us into thinking that our comforts have been satisfied. C.S. Lewis has this great little quote, the screw tape letters, imaginary letters between demons about how to tempt people to, to not love Jesus. Prosperity knits a man to the world. He feels that he is finding his place in it when really it is finding its place in him. So Jesus sees this man who is blinded by his blessings. He's blinded by his success. He's blinded by his possessions. And he is calling attention to the fact that it is people who feel their weaknesses, people who feel their brokennesses, people who are just, um, who have no worldly advantages, who by God's kindness have a better sense of their need for God. And I think there's just, I mean, we could theologize this. We could talk about, you know, well, this is what he really means. But you just see it's true. Americans tend to find their comfort in the things of this world, yet the gospel is reaping millions of people for Jesus in the third world countries, right? I mean, the majority, if you were to line up, where's the majority of the church? The majority of the church in the world would not be Americans. And it would be, you know, Africans, Chinese, South Americans, 
They would, they would burst the, the buildings off of the, all the biggest buildings in America because they know their need for Jesus. And yet in our successful, you know, upper middle class culture, we are lured into a spiritual sleep and blindness by the American dream, which is choking our souls. God is calling us to see, not to say that riches are bad or that money shouldn't be desired or cannot be used for God or that money will kill you. That's not what he's saying, but he is saying those things will tempt you away from God. They will tempt you to think that those things are the markers of blessing and to put your hope and rest and find your reward in those things rather than to find your hope and reward in God. And so the people hearing Jesus say this, they're like, okay, now that he has undercut our entire sense of blessing, what does it mean to be saved? This guy's rich, not getting saved just because of his riches. Then who can be saved? Because he's the one, he, he's the guy. He's the, the varsity coat, you know, the, the captain of the team. He's got the cheerleader for the girlfriend. He's the guy. Like everybody would think he's the one that's going to get it. And he's not getting it. Then who else is going to get in? And that's where we can kind of begin to hear Peter's anxiety. So Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God, verse 27. And then verse 28, you can kind of hear Peter's anxiety here. Like, you kind of hear him say, like, okay, Jesus, help me out here. You've just said what's impossible with man. So it's impossible for us to, to find any sort of confirmation of our, of our position with God in our, in our possessions. So if rich is blind, Jesus, we've left, we've left everything. Jesus, I've left my 401 policy. I have left my stable job. I have put my family in my in-laws' care. And now here I am. Are we in? <laughs> you know, like, Jesus, you've just said it's impossible. Please help me out. Like, I think that's kind of like where Peter's coming at. He's just like, Jesus, this seems so difficult to understand. How, how do I know that I am with you, that you have saved me? We left everything. But Jesus, Jesus responds, truly, truly. He's saying, amen, amen. Jesus is saying, truly, truly, I see you. There is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this life and in the age to come eternal life. He is saying to Peter, Peter, you can rest because you have left everything for me. I am your reward and your reward is as sure as my love for you. Peter, you can relax because what is impossible for you to accomplish with trying to become like this rich young ruler, what's impossible for you to accomplish, God's accomplished in you and you can see that because you've left everything for me. You can see God's work in you because you've left everything to be identified with me. Your reward is with me. Now, I do not think that Jesus is saying, so this is where it kind of gets tricky sometimes. You can take verses out of context and it'd be like, all right, Michelle, I'll see you later because Jesus said, I gotta leave father and mother and wife. He said wife and we had an argument last night, so see ya. I'm going with Jesus. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying because he's just commended, look, you need to obey the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments says, you know, be committed to your marriage. Be committed to your family. Like, it's not, it's not saying, like, okay, it's just the things that God just said that you, have, you need to do. 
You don't need to worry about. What he is saying is a matter of the heart's priorities. He is identifying the heart's priorities because, and I think he's going after our family relationships because often our family relationships are the things that trip us up. They, they hinder us most uh, intimately from loving God because they are the relationships that are closest to us. They know us the best. They know that we are hypocrites at uh, when the doors are closed. They know that we do not do the right things. They know that we don't say the right things. They know that we don't love the right things. They often are the ones that give us a secret counsel, the conversations around the dinner table or the conversations in the hallway. They help set and adjust our priorities and then Jesus is coming in and saying, you must be a lever at heart to those relationships. You must have God as the center of your affections, the center of your priorities, whether you are a lever at heart or a lever in action, Jesus must be at the heart of who you are. And that will require sacrifices. That will require sacrifices for you, whether you leave your family or not, that will require sacrifices because it will, it will create conflict. It will create the sense of like, wow, like, wait, so you're making a decision to get up early, to read your Bible, you're getting up to go to church, you're getting up to go serve your friends and neighborhood instead of spending time with the family. Yes, because I love Jesus and I want to know him more. I want to make other people, I want to help other people know him. It is gonna require difficult conversations where you're going to have to say, mom and dad, I love you, but I must, I must go. I must go to make Jesus known. My wife, I love you, and you are important to me, but I, I must go and make Jesus known. I must know him more. And often, I, I think that that is why Jesus goes to this section of our relationships, because that's where, that's where the day-to-day of our lives are lived, in all these relationships. And he's not saying, you know, blow those guys off, but he is saying, you must be a lever at heart, you must be a lever at heart, whether you actually leave and move from Pennsylvania to New Hampshire, whether you move from one street to the next, it does not matter. You must be a lever at heart so that Jesus is your reward because that is what he's going for, right? We are talking about the reward that we get and Jesus is saying, your reward is with God no matter the sacrifices. I couldn't decide between these two quotes, so I'm just gonna put them out there and you can decide which one you like more. He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. And then Jim Elliot, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You will not lose when you give up your family, when you give up the most intimate relationships, when you make them second in your priorities. You will not lose when you leave a job that is stable you will not lose when you leave these things for the sake of Christ that, that you would know him more, whether that means you have to lose your job or your family is angry with you or you actually have to leave your hometown to go and live where God has called you to. You will not lose when you leave these things because you are going towards Jesus and when you go towards Jesus who owns everything, you cannot lose anything. When you go towards Jesus who is the king of the earth, you get Jesus and the earth gets thrown in. If you get the earth, you get nothing because you will die with the earth. 
when you go to Jesus, when you sacrifice for Jesus, when you go to get him as your reward, you get the entire world thrown in, but that does not matter because you get Jesus himself. You get Jesus who is the center point, who is the governing force, who is the world and Lord of it. He is himself what we gain when we go to him. Yes, we sacrifice our families. Yes, we sacrifice comfort. Yes, we sacrifice friendships. Yes, we sacrifice family vacations. We sacrifice family Thanksgivings and Christmases. We sacrifice those things, but we get, we get Jesus. We get Jesus. And that's where he, he's going towards here. You will receive many times more in this time and in the age to come. Your rewards with Jesus are both and already. There are rewards here but there are rewards yet to come. There is an already reward and, a, and a, a reward yet to come. So the reward you will receive many times in this time and in other places of the gospels it says you will receive more fathers and mothers and brothers and daughters. He is talking about the family of God. One of the main themes of the gospel of Luke, what does it mean to know Jesus and what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? One of the main things it means to be a disciple of Jesus is that disciples need disciples to love Jesus together. You need the new family of God. You need to be with other disciples, whether that's here at the church, you have to. To be a disciple is to be a disciple with other disciples in the family of God. You must have the local church with you. You must love Jesus with other people. You must know him. There is a church for you to be involved with here because we are all people who love Jesus and are being rewarded by a new family but there is a reward to come. There is a reward to be received with Jesus. We, we are called to give and financially invest and give our time and to give our resources and to give our lives because if we are going to die, we might as well, give, we might as well spend our lives dying that we might gain more life. It is in this reward that we can trust God with it. These these rewards that we're talking about, a family of God, eternal life with God, the rewards of heaven, giving your money, these are all things that, frankly, that people around us at work, in our neighborhood, think are just frankly stupid, right? Why would you give your money that you have worked and sweat for to a local church? Don't you know those guys are crooks? Why would you spend your time with Christians? Don't you know those guys are hypocrites? Why would you leave your family? Don't you know that there's people who need Jesus here? Why, why would you spend your time studying the Bible? Don't you know that that was just written by people? My friends, there is a reward to be received in trusting God with your reward to know him, to treasure him, to, to obey him, to be rooted in Jesus, to be a follower of Christ. But those are the attacks of the enemy. Those are the attacks of our, of, of our great enemy. Those are the attacks that you will experience when you sacrifice, when you trust God with your reward. But, Here's the great question. I think as we're working through this, we're talking about how can we, 
how disciples trust God with their identity, how disciples trust God with their reward. But how do, how do we get all this? How do, we, how do we trust God with our identity? How do we even get to that point of getting a new identity in Jesus? How do we get to that point of getting a new, a new reward in Jesus? Now, this is where I'm going to pull a preacher move and say, let's look at verse 31. <laughs> because that was not in our original passage. But I want us to look because this, I think, gives us the heart, the epicenter of this entire passage. So, picking up in verse 31, disciples trust God with their sin. Verse 31, and taking the 12, so he has now been in this group context which is continually zeroed in, now he's talking to the 12. And taking the 12, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over the Gentiles and he will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon and after flogging him, they will kill him and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. You see, when Jesus, when Jesus talks about leaving, and when Jesus brings up this topic of being leavers at heart, when he brings up this topic of sacrificing for God, his mind tilts towards the great leaving, towards the great sacrifice, because here he has just talked about leaving everything for God, leaving everything to obey God, leaving everything for a new identity, leaving everything for a new reward because of who God is. And his mind turns towards the Son of God leaving the comforts of heaven, leaving the Father's side, for his sacrifice. He is leaving the praise and center of glory in heaven that he might, as he is, he is saying ahead of time, he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging, they will kill him. You see here, we, 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 last week we talked about this, this travel narrative where Jesus is going towards Jerusalem. This is him picking up the story. He is leaving heaven and going towards his very sacrifice. He is leaving so that he, why would he leave heaven to go towards Jerusalem where he would be flogged and beaten and killed? Why is he doing that? Why is he leaving? He is leaving he is leaving the rights and claims of his own identity as the king of the universe so that he might win a new identity for us because he will take on the position of our identity. We who are like this rich young ruler who have narrowed in our perspective on what is good, we who are like this rich young ruler who think we are good enough on our own without God's help, we who would think that we could get our own reward in this life by the things of this world, whether that's sex, money, or power, we who think we can define our own lives, who have offended God, who have offended the great and righteous God, we cannot be welcomed into his presence without Jesus taking on those very things, taking on the position, the identity of our sin, that he would die for us. His own trust in God, his own love for God 
would lead him to the cross where he would die in our place, his identity for ours, his reward for ours, so that we would get his identity as the sons of God, so that we would get his reward as the inheritors of the universe, so that we who are, who are sinful would receive the blessing of his holiness given to us. That is where the security of trusting in God for everything comes from because we are rooted in his death for us. We are rooted in his life for us. We are rooted in his resurrection for us. We are rooted in everything in him because he has accomplished everything that we did not ask him to accomplish for us. Paul says in Romans 5, starting in verse six, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. I wonder if the rich young ruler would have died for you. Though perhaps for a good person, one might dare to die. But God shows his love for us that in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. Much more. If he has died for our sins, as we are talking about, if he is going towards Jerusalem to die for your sins, much more shall we be saved by him, um, by him from the wrath of God. For if we are our enemies were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, more, than, more, shall, more can be said about us, just, not just that we were saved by his life, but much more we shall receive the, the smile of God. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We are now secured in the love and favor and kindness and smile of God because Jesus goes to Jerusalem where he takes care of your sin, the sin that you did not ask God to take care of. He is taking care of it. He is dealing with the, other, with the true identity that we all have, that we share with this righteous ruler. He is dealing with the the broken rewards that we all desire that we could have so that we could have in Jesus a true and better identity, so that we could have in Jesus a true and better reward, and so that we, like weak people, can see and love him, which, just kind of to throw it in there, the great thing about this passage is the rich young ruler who is blinded by his riches, who is blinded by the accomplishments of the world, is outdone by, in the next passage, the blind man who asked just to see Jesus walking towards Jerusalem. The blind man who has nothing, who is a beggar, just like you and me. He's the one who gets to see Jesus and is saved by his faith in Christ. It is the man who has everything that is blinded by everything that he puts his hope in that does not get to see Jesus. He does not see Jesus truly. It is the helpless who see Jesus. It is helpless people like you and me who know the smile of God. That's why we can trust God for everything because in Christ we have received a new identity. He has dealt with our sin and we have in him the great reward. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love to us. We thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you that Jesus died in our place, that we might receive the grace of God, and we might receive new identities. God, we ask that we would love Jesus more, and that we would look to be 
that we would look to receive our reward in him. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.